quick tour for you with the pyramid information. And again, um, this is Clarence Larkin's book. Uh, I think it's about 90 years old. I think it's 1920, something like that. They wrote a lot of the material in here. 1918, enlarged and revised in 1920. There you go. And so uh, that's Clarence Larkin, Dispensational Truth. Uh, this is not a major part of his work here. It is way in the back. It is almost a, an addendum, but not quite, but it does add to some of his argumentation. So what we want you to, what we want to do is we're going to look at some of the some interesting things, and then we're going to get into some scriptural things that I think are most beneficial outside of what we've been talking about on Sunday morning. And so uh, when we talk about this, we want to look at some geography, some architectural things, and some concepts that are out there. And there's been some things discovered beyond what he had available to him then, uh, archaeologically, at the Giza Great Pyramid site. And I'm going to turn off these one set of lights so you can have a better view of that. And I just took a picture of what's in his book, so this is what's right in front of me. Uh, this is what the interior of the Great Pyramid looks like. The two little ones up here uh, that you see over here are the smaller pyramids, and they are indicative of many of the other pyramids. There are a lot of pyramids in Egypt, more than you realize, uh, well over 30 of them uh, around and about. Uh, many people think the Step Pyramid is the first one, uh, although we're going to challenge that here. And, and as you can see with the other ones, most of the burial site is below the pyramid. The pyramid is basically a great big headstone. Uh, most all the pyramids are like that. If you go to some of the southern ones, uh, and you can still go down there, and they'll take you into the, the other pyramid valley. This is really not pyramid valley. There's only three here. Uh, you go farther south from this along the Nile, and you'll get into closer to where the, the, this great valley, and, and covering oh, over 30-some acres, 30, almost 40 acres, I think, of pyramids there. That uh, and most all of it is underground. You can go underground, see the hieroglyphics. You can do that. My wife and I did that back in 2001, and that's 20 years ago. Wow! And so uh, you can do that still, as far as I know today. And there's but all of it's underground, like these ones, the second and third pyramid, and basically the pyramid becomes a headstone on top of it. The Great Pyramid was not built on a level plane, and what you see here as uh, non-pyramid building underneath there is the actual stone, the, the bedrock. And so the bedrock wasn't level, but the pyramid is perfectly level. And by perfect lessons, they've measured all of these and the corners are within like two centimeters. Uh, that's like an inch of elevation difference, and we're talking about a long distance from, from one end to another. We'll talk about the measurements of this here in a little bit. Uh, and what Clarence Larkin was proposing was that um, based upon one, a, a particularly one scripture, but he, but he of course, we, we've seen all the ones about the cornerstone, the capstone, which was his main emphasis as well, uh, was that Given this, and given the idea of a capstone, and given some of the other information here, 
This is not a burial site. This is something very different because there is no burial furniture. There's nothing in this pyramid. There's only one piece of furniture in the entire thing, and it's up, in, up here in what's called the king's chamber, which is right... Where's my hand? Right there. That's the king's chamber, and that's the little piece of furniture that, and that's it. There is no treasure. Everyone wanted to dig in there to find treasure. There's no treasure in there. There was no bones. There's no, not, nothing. Um, all the other pyramids have that, but not this one. And you can see that predominantly most of it is in the pyramid structure itself, uh, not being just built over the top of it. And so uh, what he and others, he was not alone in this, and he cites a lot of the other people, the, the pyramidologists of his time at the turn of the century that uh, he was quoting from and driving information from, as well as the scriptural sources, was um, we're looking at. Now this is 120 years ago. These men would go out there and set up camp at the pyramid. And by camp, I don't mean like a little tent that they camped there for overnight. They would spend weeks there with uh, surveying equipment they would scour all over that thing. They could go in, out, around, up. Now you get to go, you can't even get up there and touch an actual stone. Uh, you pretty much are, there's a cordoned off area. I mean, you could, but I'm pretty sure the pyramid guards will come after you uh, if you do that. But uh, back in the day, you were all over this place, and people would do that and take the measurements and, and, and study this. And now you have to have credentials and have permission to get anywhere close to it. Uh, but by the way, uh, just last year, 2020, they sent robotic cameras up some of these narrow vents that you see. I keep going to that uh, right here off the king's and queen's uh, chambers. And this, by the way, these vents are a lot longer than what he shows. They found that they go all the way up to here, but they do not go outside. The king's chamber vents do. We're going to talk about those here in a little bit. Uh, and so... There's a lot of study still going on even to this day about what all of this is because it took an enormous amount of planning, enormous amount of effort to build all this into a stone structure, as you can imagine. This is, this is just a, this is the only thing that's in there. There's nothing else. These are the chambers and the passageways. And, uh, and what they were conjecturing is what does it all mean? If it's not a burial passage, what is it for? And there's a lot of conjecture, and uh, what Clarence Larkin and others that he was with and involved with in the study of this were saying, were related, trying to relate the distances to time. That this is really a, a prophetic structure to declare some information to us the problem is knowing what the measurement uh, scale is. Was it inches? You know, we have inches, we have meters, we have centimeters, we have all those. What was the scale of the ones who built this? And that was the concern of how to measure this. And here's how they review. I'm going to give you an overview of what he thinks. I, again, this is, I think, some of the weakest stuff, but I want to lay it out there for you real quick. So his view is that this is representing time from creation to the new creation in these passageways, that the entry passageway, which is lined up perfectly at the time with Alpha Draconis, uh, which they would contend is one of the north stars, 
So it's lined up with the North Star right here of the time. Uh, Alpha Draconis, and that was a, somewhat there. Uh, you see it right there? And it would go all the way down. You can see it go all the way down to this lower chamber, way down here. And so this is a perfectly lined up with that. And this is the north side on the north side of the pyramid. You can see how they, they assumed that it would be there in the center of the north side. And they started digging in, and they didn't get high enough. And, but they did eventually find when they dug in to the, to the uh, pyramid, they did find the passageway finally and bring it out. That's what this one at the bottom is, this scraggly one. This is the, the excavation entry point, and then they found this going up and down. And so we have the entry, and uh, his contention is that that represents the beginning of God's revelation of the time, and the, or perhaps of the fall man, because it's lined up with, with Alpha Draconis. Now, what is Alpha Draconis star? Not just the North Star of the time, but in what constellation? What does Draconis mean? Dragon. Who's the dragon in Scripture? Satan. And so they would line this up with that and say, this is a dominant star, the Alpha Star in the constellation Draconis, that this is really showing the descent into the lowest chamber, which he has uh, labeled H here for hell. That if you follow, this is the course of sin, uh, following Satan, that you will go straight to this location uh, called the pit. Uh, by modern people call it the pit. Because not only is it a chamber like this, you can see how he has a ragged edge at the bottom of it. They've actually found that it is truly a pit and has something that goes way down in there. Let's see if I can, eh, I'm not going to try to find that. Uh, I can show it to you here later. So even modern excavations have made even more of a pit, but it's that whole idea that this is where, without intervention, men will go. And then God intervenes. So that this, this, this is where God intervened in regards to man. Now, what event is that? And that's the question. That's the conjecture of, are we talking about uh, Abraham? Are we talking about the... Um, the Exodus is what he prefers. He prefers to go by that as the Exodus. And we have this very narrow passage heading diagonally upward before you get below grade. Below the rock grade level there, you start with a, with a diagonal upward that's very narrow. And he says, this is the time of the Israelites. From the Exodus, not from Abraham, but from the Exodus, to the church age. And then at the end of that passage... There is a lot of things happening there. You see the conjoining of multiple passages right here. And it's very interesting, these, these three different passageways, really four, joined together here. And you see this one now, this, the one heading downward toward the descent tunnel, the descent passage, is described as a, as a, as a broken open uh, mouth. It says just above the mouth is, uh, I'm sorry, let me, three feet from the entrance to the Grand Gallery on the west side is a torn and ragged opening that leads into a well that passes through masonry of the pyramid, solid rock, and a serpentine matter down to the chamber marked H. And so we have it all the way down, and his contention is that this event, what would be the event that would be here? Well, this would be the work of Christ. And he says, here you have this broken open 
uh, rugged passageway, and he describes that as Christ's descent into haste, take captivity captive. It also is when Israel uh, is tangented off as a nation from God's plan uh, because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Hence, the queen's chamber is a representation of Israel. Uh, right here is a representation. It doesn't mean that Israel ceased to exist, but that they are tangential now to the work of God. But it's interesting, the queen's chamber ends up perfectly aligned with the apex in the end of that. And he relates to this grand, this chamber, the so-called queen's chamber, as the place of Israel in God's future plan, even though right now she is not a part of the Grand Gallery. The Grand Gallery, he contends, the church, much broader, very high, very wide, much bigger than the other passage. And you might say, well, why? Why is it all here? And he talks about the width and breadth of the gospel. And then something interesting happens. You might say, well, the church age is going to end. And you notice that the king's chamber is not centered. The king's chamber is off-centered. But there is something that is centered to the capstone. And this is... Uh, and you can't quite see it on this picture, but he's got, a, uh, he's got a dashed line right through the capstone. And it's this right here. There's a weird three-foot step, uh, a little over three feet, of a step up to another plane, and then it's level. And that is perfectly in the center of the pyramid. And his contention is that that is a future event of the close of the church age that he considers to be the rapture. And interestingly, at that point, up above that, if you look up above in the top of this, there is another passageway. Why doesn't my finger go where it's supposed to? Right along the top. You see that gap above that weird-looking stone? His consent is that that only can be reached by flight. It is multiple feet high. Uh, above you, 27 feet high above. I believe it's 27 feet. He gives that all in inches, so I have to kind of figure that out a little bit. But we find that his contention is that is referencing a rapture event, and then you have uh, this other stonework all leading to the uh, one piece of furniture. He considers this to be the seven years of tribulation, quote-unquote, then the Millennial Kingdom, then the Gog-Magog, and then the new heaven and new earth, represented by the king's chamber there that is off-centered. Uh, and there's one piece of furniture that, interestingly, has the exact same internal, not external dimensions, but internal dimensions as the Ark of the Covenant. Same internal volume. Now, this is made out of red granite, and it's quite large. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant was not made out of granite. They carried it around. It was made out of wood overlaid in gold. And so, but the size of it, the interior size is about the same. And his contention is this is the throne representation of the throne room of God and things along that line. So that's his contention about the internal workings. Uh, if you go to modern sites, they're more concerned about these. You'll hear about star alignments. And they're not talking about what I just said with the entry point. They're talking about the ventilation shafts, that these shafts, are aligned with certain stars. This goes to, no, actually, this one would go to Orion. This one goes to the North Star. And, and these two go to other stars. And you'll see a lot of work about that. Um, but that's not on the 
that's not in the purview of what his work is. He's talking about the entryway being opened up to the stars, which did realign with the North Star, different North Star, but did realign with the North Star in your lifetime, except for the kids back there. In the adult's lifetime, about 20 years ago or so, it did realign for the first time since it was built that we can tell with the North Star perfectly that it's shown all the way down into the lower chamber from, from the entry point. And so that's his contention there. Any questions on all that? Yes? No. It was laid in as it was being built. All these chambers were laid in. There are massive stones to carry the weight above over these chambers. This is very deliberately done. And it would have taken an extraordinary amount of engineering to make this as you went. No. Now, the queen's chamber floor is at the 25th row of stone. Okay, so 25 to you get to the bottom of this queen's chamber. The bottom of the king's chamber is the 50th. It's exactly double. So the 50th row is the beginning of the king's chamber floor. And if you're wondering how many layers there are total, there are 210 layers total. So we are just about a fourth of the way up. So this isn't to scale, really. Uh, it's actually a little bit lower in it, it seems. But uh, realize that your visual doesn't make it look like that because the upper ones are so narrow. The quantity of the, the building by the time of the king's chamber was 52% finished by the time it got to the 50th row, right? Because as you go up, you have less volume. So 52% of the block was laid by the time you got to the king's chamber. That's a good question. Between 2160 and 2500, depends on who you talk to. Uh, if you go by the, the North Pole thing, they're saying 2160, I think. 2170 would be his contention. Uh, 2170, sorry, 2170. Uh, that that was the year that, it, that, that's, that the, the alignment of the North Star with that passageway would have been, whether it was built and finished that year or whether it was that far was built by that year. Um, the other alignments we're going to talk about mathematically. And so that was Larkin's contention with regard to that. Yes? This is the Great Pyramid of Giza. How did this get built? That's a very good question because I wanted to talk about that. Because the Egyptians didn't design it, and they admit to that. They have two, uh, there, there are two Egyptian Herodias, Herodotus, which is, of course, a, a Greek name, so you know that it was much later than its building. And then Manetho, um, who are, is an Egyptian historian. Both of them were Egyptians, but one in the Greek period, much, one much earlier. And they describe the construction as this, that Egypt was taken over by foreigners, and he calls them an ignoble race. Uh, that means that it was a race of humble people. Uh, Manetho describes them by a term we would translate as shepherd kings. They are shepherds. Uh, interesting that, what does Joseph say about Egyptians and shepherds? They hate them. They despise them. Why? Because somewhere in their history, they had a bad experience with shepherds. Well, Manetho says shepherd kings or shepherd lords came in and took over the country without a war. They were able to somehow subjugate the entire country of Egypt without a war. They 
destroyed all the temples, false temples, and put out of work all of the priests of Egypt while they were there. And that they took 20 years and, and used 100,000 Egyptians to build this pyramid. That's the Egyptian historian's view of that. And so they, they are described as they uh, describe, let me see if I can find the description of them to help us. How they describe the um, people that came in and built it. I didn't mark that on here. They described them as Arabians that came in and that once it was built, they left Egypt in large numbers and went up to Judea and built a city named Jerusalem. So, who founded Jerusalem? Well, we know it was a Jebusite city, but who was it? And a lot of people then make that connection. So here's the Egyptians saying this ignoble group of, they called them Arabians, uh, came in and called them shepherds who took over in, and built this and then went up into an area that, that uh, we would call Israel, Judea, but back then they called it Philistia, Philistion, which is Philistine, Philistine territory. But they built the city of Jebus, and that would be Jerusalem. And so that's what is attributed to as building this. So it wasn't an Egyptian structure. It was built by Egyptians underneath the direction of these Arabian shepherd kings that came in, took over the country, and destroyed all of that false religion for at least 20 years of their rule there while they built this. And that is pretty consistent because everyone acknowledges Manetho and Herodias, Herodotus, um, as historians. Okay, so good question. And you might say, well, so... His conjecture is, some people say it's Melchizedek that built it, but Melchizedek, we don't know, that founded the, the Jebusite thing. It would be an Abrahamic period of time, uh, pre-Abrahamic or coincide with Abraham's period of time. Uh, he likes Job, and he has several passages out of the book of Job that kind of seem to indicate that God might have revealed some very special information to Job to enable him to build this, that this was in response to what happened in the book of Job, that this was a, a worship act of Job and his friends having engaged with God prior to it, and that this was the response to come into Egypt and build this under God's direction, uh, which is not entirely fanciful. It is about the same right period of time, because Job would have been before Abraham. as one of the oldest books of the Bible. There's a lot of natural information that is granted to Job by God directly, and it is... Very possible that, that is a period of time. Uh, so it could be right. Others think of it as a pre-flood thing, which takes it back to Seth. Uh, others say it's Shem. And remember, Shem had a lot of things going on in Egyptian uh, religion. Remember who Shem is, right? Son of Noah. And Shem is the one that is even in Egyptian hieroglyphs and, and religion, was at war with Osiris, their, their god. Shem is the bad guy in Egyptian religion. 
And Osiris is the good guy. And Shem kills Osiris and cuts him up. And Isis, his wife, who then gives birth to Horus, this is supposed to be a reincarnation of Osiris. This is the entire basis of the Egyptian religion. Goes back to Shem. And so a lot of people see his influence, possible influence here in the building of this and it, why there's such a hatred toward Shem, toward shepherds. But any of these are good candidates. But that answers the question of why do we have this in Egypt? And I'm gonna, that's huge to the scripture in Isaiah that we're going to be looking at. Any other questions on, we, we don't know the measuring distance, but we do have an interesting thing on the, on the you know, the pyramid is a perfect mathematical presentation to us. There's so much mathematics going on here. It, is, it, is, it tells you how, what pi is to a, to a long number. Um, it uses, it is the perfect, it, it's how to square a circle. Um, how do you, it's all those measurements are there, perfectly represented in, in all the distances there. The, um, and so it would have been really appropriate for us to have studied this last Lord's Day because it was Pi Day. 3.14, right? March 14th. So uh, this is mathematically pi is intrinsic into this, including the quote-unquote ventilation shafts. Uh, the ventilation shafts are very interesting because all of them produce uh, a similar triangle if you take them out to their full distances that we've now discovered and you set them up and upside down them, you will find uh, three or four triangles three triangles inside of that, all squares of, of um, circles as well. And so a lot of mathematics involved here. The side, if you use the Hebrew cubit, this is very interesting, because if you go there, it's all measured in Egyptian royal cubits, uh, is what they, and what they basically set the Egyptian royal cubit to is this building. Okay, so that, measures the Egyptian royal cubit. It's 440 Egyptian royal cubits, long, deep, so it's a square, right? Within a couple of centimeters of a square, perfect square. The variation is centimeters. Can you imagine this? Um, if you take Hebrew cubits, which are a little longer than the Egyptian royal cubit, uh, it comes out to, very interestingly, he's got the math on this, it comes out that the length of it, of each side of the pyramid, is 365.2422 cubits, Hebrew cubits. What does that sound like to you? A year. And this was what got people thinking, if I apply a Jewish measurement to this, each side distance is how many days there are in a year solar days. And that's what introduced the idea, can we consider distance equal to time? We don't know the scale, but are we, is it telling us that distance equals time in this model by the exterior? If you apply the Hebrew cubit to it, uh, we find that that ends up being what it is. Uh, it's a perfect representation of each side uh, that distance equals one year in the Hebrew cubit that, uh, of course, we know the ark to be built by, uh, the 
other structures of Israel built by that. And so we have some of those available to us, and we apply it here, and we get those kind of numbers. Let's just go on. I, I, I want to really focus on God's word here really shortly. This is very interesting that uh, in their survey of land mass in the world, that the pyramid is the geographical center of land mass. If you take all the land mass in the world on a flat map, the pyramid is, divides it into fourths of all land mass on the earth. Kind of interesting, huh? Just randomly selected, though. So I'd throw that in there. So in other words, each quadrant of this has the same amount of land mass. It doesn't look like it on that map because our maps are scaled so screwy because uh, Greenland is not that big, okay? <laughs> is, and, and South America is not that small, right? But uh, in actual land mass, it really divides the world into fourths equally, above and below it and one side to the other side of it. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. This is what is of interest to us. A surveyor went out there and was noticing the arc of the Nile Delta. And he started measuring that arc, and he said, that, that's very interesting. The Nile Delta is like a perfect curve. And he fed that back and ends up to being that the, the pyramid becomes kind of a center a fulcrum point for that arc. Now, is it the center of a circle made out of that arc? I don't think so. I don't know if this is the scale. Um, by that scale, it isn't, but it is certainly a, a, a fulcrum point of that arc's ends to come down and they align with the Great Pyramid. Why is that important? Well, let's go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the proper pronunciation. but You're familiar with Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah says there's going to be something we should look for in Egypt. Isaiah 19. This is a proclamation against Egypt by Isaiah, but in the midst of this, he also tells us that in the day, there's going to be a day coming when God's going to be doing some things uh, there. And so let's jump ahead to verse 19. It says, in that day, in that day, uh, is a day that all men, a speck of verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. He will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. The Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will sacrifice an, an offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it, and they will return to the Lord, and he will entreat by them and heal them in that day. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will welcome into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. 
Wow, has that ever happened? No, this is a prophetic utterance of the future. This is kind of what the millennial kingdom will look like. Okay, that there's going to be peace to the north, the Assyrians, peace to the south, the Egyptians, which are in Isaiah's time the uh, big problems. He says there's going to be peace all through this region, um, all the way from the south to the north, and Israel's going to be the center of it. But please notice, what there, there's no place of worship in Assyria. Look at the favorable terms that God uses for the Egyptians. And it's all built and centered around this pillar, uh, that there will be an altar and a pillar to the Lord. Now, it looks like there's two things. There's an altar and a pillar. But we find out in the next verse that it's singular. It's a single thing. There is one single pillar that is in the center of the land and at its border. It's in the midst of the land, it says, and then it says it at its border. Well, how can it be at the center of a land and at its border? Both. Well, that's something unique to Egypt. So you have this, this great pyramid that's already standing, that has, doesn't have its capstone. Uh, Jesus is the cornerstone. And God's word says that here in there'll be five cities down here that'll be dedicated to the Lord. One of them will be a place of sacrifice and offering. There will be an altar there uh, that will have that will be used in this sense. And when we look at the Great Pyramid of Giza, it sits at a center point of not only the delta, but all of Egypt, but it is a border stone. What is it a border of? It's not a border between Egypt and Israel or Egypt and another country. It is a border within Egypt. Egypt has been divided multiple times in its history. And that's why we call Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt. And if you look on here, you'll see that Upper Egypt with Memphis and all that is this southern part because it's higher. And Lower Egypt is the northern part. And if you look at the old pharaonic crowns, and we have those in hieroglyphs, and so we know whether a pharaoh had control of both Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt because they each had a separate crown, but they could be fitted together. One would fit over the other one. And so if you were the pharaoh of both Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, you would have this special crown that is really two crowns in one. They just fit right over each other. And so by the hieroglyphs, we know, well, this pharaoh is missing this crown, so he's only the pharaoh of Upper Egypt. This pharaoh is missing that crown, he has that crown, so he's the pharaoh only of Lower Egypt, whereas this great pharaoh was the pharaoh of all of it because he had both of them combined on his head. This is in modern Egyptian hieroglyphs. You can go look at them today. I did that. Okay, I went and looked at those things and studied them. This is in the time period when I was writing my book, and I was doing a lot of research in this area for this very reason, because of its association with the end times. And so this is one of the few countries that really was, was made up of two different countries at various points in history. Sometimes there are two pharaohs in Egypt, sometimes only one. And so we have this pillar at the border of between northern and southern Egypt and in the midst of its land, in, in pretty much the center point of its land, and as we saw before, the center point really of the whole earth's land. 
And look at the terminology used here is that the Lord will be known to Egypt. The Egyptians are going to know the Lord. They're going to make sacrifices. Remember during the Millennial Kingdom, the sacrifices are reinstated. And so all the other nations have to go to Jerusalem or this is the alternate location for you to go and make sacrifices, particularly for Egypt, because Egypt has a very precious place in God's plan. Uh, and I think it all goes back to Joseph and to the Pharaoh who knew Joseph and worshipped Joseph's God. Now, this is a place of protection for Egypt, or for Israel, and where Israel was multiplied and became a nation there. Remember that even uh, in our Lord's birth narrative, where did Jesus have to go to for protection? Egypt. Egypt was a place that the angel sent Joseph and Mary with Jesus to hide out from Herod, go to Egypt. And it probably wasn't as far as you think. It was like a day's drive, day's donkey ride. Um, but it didn't, the Egyptian border wasn't very far south of Bethlehem is what I'm trying to say. And so Egypt was the place and that for the prophecy says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so Egypt is very precious, and it will be precious not only historically, but it's precious into the future. And that's why Egyptology, the study of the nation of Egypt, and the existence of the nation of Egypt has persisted. Egypt is that well, longest serving, uh, by its ancient name, the country that's on the earth. Just as the Great Pyramid is the last of the seven wonders of the world that still is predominantly there outside of the casing stones that we talked about. And, it, and again, it relates to this geological location for it and its theological significance with Isaiah uh, and his prophecy about the future of Egypt. And so we have some wonderful things prophetically out of this that I think are worth us recognizing that something uh, is special about this structure. Uh, while we don't have exact references, there's a pyramid in Egypt. Um, we do know that there is ample correlation between what we see is expected in the scripture and what we have in the Giza site. And the Great Pyramid, again, was copied by the Egyptians afterwards as burial tombs, but this one was not a burial tomb. There's no way. And that's pretty much... Uh, denied by a lot of people, but a hundred years ago, it was recognized by most archaeologists. Modern times, you won't hear, they'll still say, you know, these vent holes are for stargazing, and because why do, but why do dead people need venting? Interesting, the Queen's Chamber doesn't exit the building. Uh, the Lower Chamber of Hades doesn't have uh, any ventilation at all, which is kind of what you expect. There's no life down there. Uh, it's, it's death down there. Uh, Queen's Chamber is still in the center of God's plan, but it is going to be different than the King's Chamber. And the center point, though, for the people of God, Israel's still a people of God. They're still in the center underneath the capstone, but the other place where the center of the capstone is is the close of the Grand, grand, uh, the grand Gallery. That's what they call it, the Grand Gallery. And so the close of the Grand Gallery is directly below the capstone, in the center of the structure. Okay. And so that's just some of the 
other things that it was outside the purview of what I'm preaching on Sunday mornings. You recognize that, I'm sure. But it's just things that are worth us just taking note of. Uh, is God's word trustworthy? Absolutely. Uh, and so do I believe this is actually going to come true for Egypt? Yes. And there are other prophecies about Jordan, the nation of Jordan in the book of Daniel. Uh, and here's a prophecy also of Assyria and the place of Assyria in the millennial kingdom that God will have them all at peace with Israel and that there will be a highway going one to the other and everyone will be using it openly and freely, which isn't the case now. It's not the case during the seven years of wrath. It is the case of the millennial kingdom. And this location fits what is described in Scripture for God's design there. This is all the mathematics of it. And when you measure it all out in... Uh, Hebrew cubits, as I said, just to give you a correlation, here's what you can pull up on the internet of, to scale things, um, scale representations of it. And again, you can see pretty much identical with the exception of the ventilation or the extended shafts that we have off the Queen's Chamber that we have, they, they have put dashed lines up to the exit. They think they might have gone up to the exit, uh, but we haven't found them yet, but we're sending little robots up there with cameras to try to do it. But they came across a rock they couldn't move, so the little robot couldn't move the rock, couldn't get around it, so we don't know what's beyond the other side of that rock. Any questions, comments? Mathematically, it's very interesting if you use these. There's a site that goes through this and uh, shows these the math of these, they're all at the 7 and 11 relationship. And if you don't know what 7 and 11 relationship is, uh, 722 is how you get pi. That's the 720 seconds. And 711 is half pi, which this is half the square of a circle, right? And so that's why 711 relationship is so important. It's, it's half pi. And that is all over the place inside of here. And so some people believe it's a map, a coordination map, which sends you, if you follow those coordinates, it sends you to the Himalayas, to a four-sided mountain that's about the same dimensions as this pyramid, pyramidic mountain in the Himalayas. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. So there's lots of other information. Like I said, it, and then it gets weird because then it starts getting into UFOs and aliens and stars and, and all of this stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't spend enormous amounts of time on this, uh, but when you have the chief cornerstone, you have this prophecy in Isaiah, you have a description in Ezekiel of the reinstitution of sacrifice during the millennial kingdom, and combined with this and, and the whole laying down of the lion and the lamb, uh, it, it becomes an intriguing site to study, and it's very evident that it is a prophetic, uh, at some point it, it is a prophetic building to at least explore and consider. Do I build my faith on that? No, my faith is in God's word, in Jesus Christ, but uh, as it correlates with it, we recognize that God revealed himself in different ways, in different places, and I believe this is the, one of the ways he revealed himself in the past. And just like with the temple site in Jerusalem, uh, I believe that God is going to open minds and hearts up during the millennial kingdom to this site and explain it to us. Okay. <laughs>
that we are superior technologically to them. Right, we, our ancestors were not simpletons. They, the precision of this building is, is extraordinary. Our building here is not built to that precision, even close. Because I know that back corner of that thing is way off of square. Because I measured it, so. To have this kind of building that is, um, just to give you a, let, let's see, I didn't give it to you. I give it to you in cubits. Let's see if I can find it in one cubit, 25 inches times 365 and a fourth. What does that equal? That's like 830 feet long, one side. Perfectly square, perfectly level. And with all this intricate detail inside, and there are some great sites out there about how it could have been built. We're just now catching up with the Egyptians using hydrology, using water to build it. And if you can find that site, he has an excellent video of, of using water and, and technology was readily available back then. And it just reinvents the whole concept of what you're seeing there at the site. Um, there's a great big passageway from the river up to this building site. And if it had a cover on it, it would have been a water conduit. And it would have been perfectly sized for the stones going up if they were enveloped in bags of air to float, float the stones to the building site. Not drag them, not roll them, float them cool stuff being brought out nowadays. Knowledge is increasing. Okay, um, it's on that chart, right? It's 232 cubits, 232.52 cubits as A squared, B squared, C squared. It's a perfect pyramid. It is the perfect square of a circle. Yeah. The mathematics of this building is just out of this world. So if you think Pythagoras is the father of modern mathematics, you are way off. He learned it from these guys. That's why I think Job is a good, good guess. Shem is a good guess. Melchizedek, maybe. It would be after the flood. It would be post-flood, right. So... It would have been after the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel tells you the technology, the capability of men at that period of time. Because God didn't say these idiots are trying to build something. He said they could build this if I don't interrupt it, right? So he says if these people aren't broken apart, they could accomplish anything they set their mind to. So their acuity with math and engineering is well beyond us. And if you've ever traveled around the Mediterranean and visited ancient sites that are thousands of years old and still standing, we look at it and we don't know how they did that. We still don't know how they did that. And so their capacities are well beyond us. That's because they had alien assistance. Right. But it doesn't fit the evolutionary model, does it? So, that we are improving, improving, improving when we actually aren't. We are getting dumber. Not just by generations, but by millennia. We are getting weaker and 
less smart. Okay? Just some stuff out there. Yes. The interior... No, both of their interior size is the same. Right. So what, not that the Ark of the Covenant sits in it, but the interior of both structures is identical to each other. But this was built before the Ark of the Covenant was made, correct? Remember that Moses was to build everything according to the measurements of what he saw in heaven. God said, "What well, I'm going to show you the heavenly furniture, and you're going to make it according to these dimensions, and that is an equivalent dimension to the, the, the only piece of furniture in the Great Pyramid. It's kind of fun, huh? Kind of fun stuff to think about, that God's been at work all these years, that it, that it agrees with God's word, that uh, we can study these things on the earth, and you have to wade through a lot of the worldliness and their denial of God, and, uh, but one day, all Egypt will acknowledge the Lord. But they're going to have to go through seven years of God's wrath, endure that, and then even at the end of a thousand years of acknowledging the Lord, they're going to rise up in rebellion. So there's going to be a Gog-Magog event. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your faithfulness, your consistency, and and even for this that maybe tickles our brains a little bit, and, but it, it pleases our hearts to know that you are faithful and your word can be trusted, that not only what it has said in the past, but what it promises into the future. And we can see in the world around us the evidences of all that you've spoken of and, and have spoken to come to be. We are seeing it um, consistent with your word. And we pray that you might find us acknowledging its authority, and that we might then uh, trust you more with the things that are more emphatic, that are more well-known, that are more demanding, that we might find ourselves wanting to be more obedient. And we do this not in our own strength and determination, but uh, by your Spirit and his power and uh, according to your will. And Lord, help us to be uh, always following there. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.